Well, good morning again. We're on a journey through the book of Joshua, and this morning we're going to be in Joshua 10. It's a chapter with an amazing story of cosmic wonders. And this passage is, walks through, the whole chapter walks through ten, seven battles, but this morning we're just going to cover one of those battles. We're going to look at the battle of Gibeon. Um, I know Jeff just prayed, but let me pray real quickly and ask for his help. God, I thank you for the privilege it is to open your word and to see you revealed in it, your son revealed in it, your glory. We ask for your spirit that he would work and that these words would come um, not in eloquent words of wisdom, but in the power of the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So where are we at in the book of Joshua? Um, God's people have been told to be strong and courageous at the very beginning. And remember, he told them to take the land that he had promised to give them. And if you remember, that's what the book of Joshua is about. It's about God's faithfulness to keep his promises... And more than that, to show us Jesus is the way that he keeps his promises. And we've learned that he's a good God in it, but we've also seen already that he is a holy and wrathful God. And so far in the history of, uh, in this history book, we've seen him part the flooded Jordan River, right? And we've seen him... um, give his people the cities of Jericho. We saw the walls fall down. We saw the defeat of Ai. And then about a month ago, we saw Joshua and the leaders fall into this really tricky situation with the Gibeonites who used some clever trickery. You remember, they dressed up and acted like they were from a long ways away and came and said, we are from a long ways away with you, from you. We want to make a covenant with you. And then Israel made that covenant, swore an oath before God to not fight with these, this, these people. And then they found out they're their neighbors. Remember all that? That's where we are at. And it's interesting because now with having the Gibeonites on Joshua's side, geographically, Joshua has the upper hand because the area of land where they crossed over Jordan, they crossed over right about in the middle of Israel. And the Gibeonites had territory right there in the middle. And now, basically, Joshua has cut a swath of land all the way from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean coast, which means he's cut off passage from the north and the south. And from a geographical military perspective, he has the upper hand. So, and the Gibeonites, as we're about to see in this passage, were a pretty powerful group. So that's the context of where we're at in chapter 10. Let's read together verses 1 through 7 of Joshua 10. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel 
and were among the Israelites, among them, this king, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. All right, so you're seeing this city, this guy is now afraid because Gibeon is on Israel's side. Verse 3, so Adonai, Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me and let me strike, let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon, so all these kings have come up against the city of Gibeon, and they're making, wanting to make war against Gibeon. So Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Okay, that's verse seven, first seven verses there. This is the first time, by the way, in the entire Bible that we hear of the city of Jerusalem um, named. And that king, Adonai Zedek, he recognizes that strategic advantage that Joshua has. And that's why he's terrified. <laughs> he's terrified because he knows unless something changes, he's not going to win. That theme of being terrified by Israel, of Israel, is a theme that runs all the way through this book. When pagans, when people outside of the people of Israel hear of God's mighty acts, they fear. That's a theme that you'll see in Joshua and actually all through the Old Testament when, they're, when Israel's doing the right thing. What's more is that these other four Amorite kings, at the beginning of chapter 9, the very first couple of verses, that you hear about this alliance they formed, a treaty that these five kings all came together and it included Gibeon. Well, this king's upset because Gibeon backed out of that treaty, out of that alliance, did an end run around them and went to Israel. That's why this guy's mad because Gibeon has said, uh, we're going to be with Israel instead because I think they're going to probably have the upper hand against us. That's where they're at. That's the reason why these five kings all together go up against Gibeon. And that's the reason why now Gibeon says, whoa, 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 we got five nation states. When you, say key, when you see kings in Joshua or nations, they're like big cities, essentially. And the kings are basically mayors of those areas. But they're all coming against Gibeon. And now Gibeon's like, wait, 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 we need help. So they run to Joshua to get them out of this sticky situation. Now, if you remember, they made that oath. At this point, Joshua could get out of that whole oath thing. Because if he just lets Gibeon be attacked, now Gibeon's out of their hands. They don't have to be, deal with them. But that would be going against his word, wouldn't it? That would be going against 
his oath. And so Joshua honors his word and gathers his troops to face the enemy. So that leads us to the next thing that we see is that God promises a victory. It's this really slow fade thing today. <laughs> like, hey. <laughs> Verse 8 of chapter 10. So Joshua decides he's going to fight. What does the Lord say to Joshua? He says, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands, and not a man of them shall stand before you. Now, if you've read through Joshua, that should sound somewhat familiar to you. He said this to him before in Joshua. <laughs> the clicking is just like... Oh. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I can handle the fade. I just go ahead and go to the next one there. Well, Joshua, verse... Chapter 1, verse 9 says, there we go. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God has told Joshua this once before, and then he says it again in chapter 8. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. So if we go back to our verse, there we go. He says to Joshua, don't fear them. I've given them in your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. That's like total victory God is promising to Joshua. The finality of that's pretty breathtaking. God knows us. He knows that the way we are able to keep moving forward in this life, in the face of fearful promise, fearful situations, to take confidence in the promises he's already given to you. He'd already promised Joshua, don't fear, I will be with you. And he says it again and again. For you and I, in our fearful situations, we have to remember that. Remember promises he has made. That's how you're going to keep moving forward. That's the pattern he has for us. And now we're going to see in our passage here that God brings a victory. And this victory we're going to see clearly, as you're going to see in the passage, has to be a victory from God. It has to be one where he's fighting because of what we're going to see. And as we read these, I want you to see, okay, who's fighting here? Who's doing most of the fighting? All right? So let's read verses 9 through 15. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, and having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent at Beth Horan, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horan, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones. Then the sons of Israel killed with the sword. 
At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So who fought there? The Lord, right? You, you get pictures that Israel was fighting because it did reference that people had died by the sword of Israel. But it says more people died because of what the Lord did. This is beyond amazing. I mean, of all the miracles in the Bible, <laughs> this is up there. This is, is, is phenomenal. And, and it tells us so much about our God, doesn't it? Right? It, it, it tells us he's the omnipotent one, all-powerful. It tells us that he's the king, not just over earth, but all of heaven, all of the space, everything. I mean, we could go on about all the different things. This tells us just alone about the kind of God we have. But one of the big questions I think that you need to think about is, when it says the sun stood still, wait a second, what happened there? That should make your head go a little bit. If you know even a little inkling about science and how physics and how the earth works and gravity and how it's all pretty much entwined together. And I'm not going to give you an answer today. You're like, what? Because this is my plug for you to come on Wednesday. Because I'm going to do a mat second look at what in the world happened to the earth when the sun stood still, All right? So come Wednesday night, we'll dig into the what happened when the sun stood still. But for now, it's abundantly clear that God's power was put on display, right? Wow, everybody would see Yahweh, the Lord, all caps Lord. That is clearly God's power over everything. And here in this passage, I mean, he's destroying all those people. Think about that. God from heaven is destroying people. That's the fury of his wrath. Do not miss that, the, that God is throwing down fire from heaven and killing people. At the same time, he's doing that for his people. He's fighting for his people. Now, if you look at the passage right at the beginning of that, uh, I missed it. Oh, yeah, very first part. Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Back in our last chapter, we saw that Gilgal is like three days' journey from Gilgal. This place is Gibeon. And you're like, wait a second, how did you do it all night? 
<laughs> that should be in your head. Well, three days journey is a normal journey, right? We're just going to take all of our stuff. It's going to take a while to go that way. This is what we call, gentlemen who are in the army, a road march. <laughs> and if you've been in the infantry or in the military at all, you know something about road marches. <laughs> and while I was blessed to never be deployed, um, I know something a little bit about road marches because you do a lot of that. And in, in, um, when, near the end of my, my time in basic training, we did one of these two-week campouts, like almost bivouac. And at the end of that two weeks, we went on a 20-mile road march. And that's a, long, that's a long haul when you're carrying an M60 tripod and all your gear, and it's hot, right? At the end of that road march, though, it's... Well, the beginning, it was in the 70s, upper 70s. And over the whole time of that road march, it dropped down. This is Georgia, down into the 30s, and started snowing. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty, pretty awful. <laughs> we get to the end of that, and I think I'm about to die just from this road march because I'm not exactly the most athletic person, if you haven't been able to tell. <laughs> we get to the end of it, and I, I'm hoping there's going to be troop carriers waiting for us to take us back to the barracks. But instead, at the end of that 20-mile road, 20 road march was an obstacle course, and it had been raining and then snowing, and you're going underneath barbed wire, and they're shooting live ammunition now above your head. And explosions are going off on the side of you. And, you know, my adrenaline is kicking in, and I can get through that obstacle course. I didn't think I'd be able to. And then we got, we're ready to hit the sack. But these guys did an all-night road march over mountainous terrain and go right into battle. Right into battle must have been as the sun is coming up. In fact, it must have been one of those days when you see the sun and the moon still at the same time, which is why it says the sun stands still and the moon did as well. Now, we're amazed at this, right? I, I'm, if you're not amazed, you're asleep. <laughs> this is, is, is phenomenal, but what is really what is really amazing about this victory? The text actually shows us what's amazing about what happened here. I mean, it's amazing to us that God targeted hailstones on people. That's amazing. It's amazing that he's held the sun and the moon still, and whatever that means, he did that. That's amazing. But the text says there's something more amazing. It says that God moved heaven and earth because he listened to a man. Look at verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, or it actually means listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, it doesn't say this. It doesn't say there was no day like it before or after when the sun and moon stood still. That's not what it's saying. And it's not saying there's no day like it before or after it when God listened to what a man prayed, that's still not what it's saying. Because think about it. Moses prayed, and pretty awesome things happened. The whole Red Sea parted, right? He did something, right? So it can't be simply that that happened. And in fact, it can't be simply that God listened, because there's this exact Hebrew phrase 
in Genesis, when it's talking about how Rachel couldn't have children, she was barren. And it says, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. So this verse can't mean that either. Here's what I think it means. It's combining the cosmic nature of what happened here with the prayer of a man. Those two things combined. This, this commentator, I think, helped brings it together. He says, what astonishes the author here of Joshua is not simply that God answers a plea. The Old Testament attests that he often answers prayers. But that he heeds a request of such cosmic magnitude. It, the sun and the moon, which we know the earth is turning. Really, the sun doesn't move. We still talk about sunrise and sunset, so we think in terms like that. It means it didn't. The earth had to freeze. If you know anything about science, and I don't know a whole lot about science, I know that that's really awesome, right? And the fact that God listened to the prayer of Joshua and caused that to happen is what's astonishing here. Now, we have to remember some things, though. Okay? We have to remember that the God of the universe personally told Joshua that he, had, he would give him that enemy. He told him, not a man of you is going to, these people are going to stand. I'm going to give you total victory. He had personally told him that. This is also Joshua who had seen the plagues of Egypt. He had seen God do cosmic wonders. He had seen God part the Red Sea. He had seen God part the Jordan River. He had seen walls just fall down for no reason at all. And God is telling him, I'm going to give you everything. And furthermore, we know that Joshua stands as the mediator between Israel and God. In Moses... In, in the books of Moses, Moses is said to be the one that represents God to the people as their mediator. And then Joshua takes his place. So Joshua, standing in the place of mediator between Israel and God, who has seen God do all these things, who has been told by God, I'm going to give you everything, can confidently say, God, here's what I want you to do. And then God does it. Now, that's awesome. <laughs> and I think it'd be easy for us to now go into some kind of interesting application about the nature of our prayers. And I think I would actually be a bad pastor for doing that. Okay? Um, you'd be like, why? That's awesome. Can I pray like that? <laughs> I want that truck out there. <laughs> that's not the right thing for me to do. All right? There are some pastors that do that. They make a lot of money, and they're on TV. Right? You can fire me if I do that. But I want us to look at two things before, well, what we need to do, what my job as a pastor is, if, when I'm preaching from the Old Testament, is to show you Jesus. All right? It's not simply to explain like I just spent the first 10, 15 minutes doing not simply to explain the text and not simply to apply it. It's to help you see Jesus. So I want to show you first 
why that's my job as a pastor, to preach to you Jesus from the Old Testament. And then after we see why we have to see Jesus in a text like this, then I want us to take a step back and see, okay, these 15 verses, what's the main point? Okay, so let's first talk about why we have to first see Jesus in any Old Testament text. So after Jesus rose from the dead, on the day he rose from the dead, we read that he was walking along this road to Emmaus and catches up with two of his followers, and they don't recognize him. And they're talking. They're talking about all that's going on and about Jesus' death, and now his body's missing, and he starts to explain to them that, don't you see, this was the plan all along, right? And then what he does, proceeds to do, is to show them, not from the New Testament, because it didn't exist at that point, how the Old Testament was looking forward to this. So, look at Luke 24, 27, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. So scriptures at that point is Genesis through Malachi. Technically, it's Genesis through Ruth, but that's how they arranged their Bible in the Old Testament. It's all of the Old Testament and the things concerning himself. Now, which parts of the Old Testament is he talking about? It's more than just those awesome prophecies like in Isaiah 53. We see those. Those are clear prophecies about a Messiah coming. It's got to be more than just that. Because it says all the scriptures. All the scriptures. Now you may say, well, he covered all the areas of scripture and those areas pulled up together somehow point to Jesus. Well, I think it actually means more than that. Because if we look at Matthew 5, Jesus is saying to the people, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when he says the law and the prophets, just like he did in the last one, he's referring to all the Old Testament. Because the Jewish people, the rabbis, would refer to their Old Testament in two of three ways. Wait, wait, two different ways. (laughs) About the law and the prophets, or they'd say the law, the prophets, and the writings. Either way, they're talking about all the Bible. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, you know your kings and James, you've heard jot and tittle there, right? Every jot and tittle, like every I dotted, every T crossed. I want to show you literally what he means here. That word iota is the Greek word for the letter I in Greek. It's the smallest little letter you could write in Greek. So when they, remember when Jesus spoke, he wasn't speaking in Greek. He was speaking in Aramaic, which is a sister language of Hebrew. It's actually the daughter language of Hebrew. So he would not have said iota to them. He would have said yod. Yod is the smallest letter in Hebrew. It looks like this. This is the word Yahweh in Hebrew. And you, we read from right to left in Hebrew. This little stroke right here is the letter Yod, Yah, in Hebrew. Jesus is saying, 
Not even the littlest letter. Or then when he says die, it actually means stroke. When I write in Hebrew, when these guys write, see the little curves? These are all very important to these people when they write Hebrew. And they do this in single strokes. So this is one stroke of the pen without lifting it off. Same thing here, lifting it off. The smallest stroke is like this. The letter hey, and that little stroke right there is the smallest stroke. Jesus is saying every single little stroke of every letter in the Old Testament points to me. He's not saying just the prophecies, not just categories. Every single thing in the Old Testament points to Jesus down to the littlest stroke of the pen. Now, why does that matter for us? I had to rewrite this sermon. I've preached on this at a previous church where I was a pastor. And I was reading a book this week called Your Old Testament Sermon Needs to Get Saved. (laughs) And he pointed out that if you're preaching from the Old Testament and you just simply tack on Jesus at the end, you're really not showing them how Jesus is in the Old Testament. In fact, and this is what was convicting to me, he said a Jewish or even a Muslim could be sitting in your audience and be okay with your sermon if you don't show Jesus from it. That's, wait, (laughs) that's why I said, fire me as your pastor if I don't show you Jesus from the Old Testament because to not show Jesus makes the Old Testament not about him and says you can live your life without Jesus. It's bad, right? (laughs) We need to see Jesus here. So that's the first argument of why we have to see Jesus even in these things here like this battle or when you're reading the Levitical laws and they like all these details about spots in the walls. How in the world does that point you to Jesus? I'm just thankful I'm not preaching through those right now because that's tough. But it somehow points to Jesus. Second thing though, then is, okay, so it points to Jesus. In order for us to see how a text points to Jesus, you've got to see the point of the text. It'd be easy for me to just pick out one little piece in here and say, well, that's like Jesus. That's like Jesus. You can kind of do that, but that's not being fair to the text. We want to understand what does all that text mean? What's the point? Now, if you're reading the Bible there's a way to find the point of a text. Um, In your King James Bibles, they have the verses and they just go boom, 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 chapter number, boom, boom, boom. Modern translations, you'll start to see, actually have paragraphs. It's not simply that the verses are just left justified here. They're like arranged in paragraphs like you would, indented, you can kind of see. That helps you see the area of the text that's together. I've picked verses 1 through 15 of Joshua because it all goes together as one paragraph. And for you, when you're reading your Bible and you're trying to figure out what the point is, probably one of the easiest ways is to do this, what we're about to do. Let's summarize the things that we see here. Have you ever remember in class, your teacher said, write in your own words this and you hated that? (laughs) What they're asking you to do is help you grasp what's written there. So if we were to summarize in five points what happens in those first 15 verses, I think we'll see this. The first thing we saw 
is that the nations rise against the Lord. You're like, wait, no, 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 they rose against Israel. Well, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, Israel represents Yahweh, the Lord, to the world. Just like today, and the church represents God to the world, Israel represented Yahweh to the Lord. So if nations rise against Israel, they're rising against God. So first point we've seen there is that the nations rise against the Lord. The second thing we saw is the Gibeonites came to the Lord's people to seek his help, right? The third thing we saw is that the Lord assured Joshua of total victory. How? By reminding them of his promises. Don't fear, I'm with you. I'm going to do this. The fourth thing we see then is that the Lord wields the forces of nature against his enemies. We saw that. That's the hailstones part. And then Joshua commands the heavenly lights to stop, and the Lord answers his prayer. You see how I just brought all 15 verses into five little bits. Now, once you've done that, you can do this. Just read your text and kind of, okay, what's the main points? It doesn't have to be five. Just break it down into smaller bits. After you've done that, now take a step back and say, okay, how would I put all that into one sentence? Maybe reduce it a little more. And here's what I'd say that that passage is doing. It shows that the Lord fights for his people by rescuing Gibeon, by fulfilling his promises to Israel, and by judging his enemies with fury as a result of listening to the voice of the man, Joshua. We just summarized 15 verses right into one little sentence. That's the point of this passage. By doing that, we didn't fall into the trap of, I'm going to pray awesome prayers, <laughs> right? That's how you avoid taking things out of context. That's how you avoid taking things out of context. You kind of go through the text, take a step back, look at it. So the point of this is that the Lord fights for his people by rescuing, by fulfilling promises, by judging his enemies with fury the result of listening to the voice of a man named Joshua. Now, given that now we know we need to see Jesus in this text, and the way you need to see Jesus is through the point of the text. Well, the point of the text we've now discovered. So how do we then see a shadow of Jesus right there in this text? Well, let me ask you, who, as a man spoke to the winds and the waves and commanded them to stop? Who spoke to demons and commanded them to come out? And who spoke to God and said, Father, I know you always hear me, and the dead Lazarus was commanded back to life? Jesus Jesus is that greater Joshua who can speak to nature and to the dead and cause things to happen. That's how you see a shadow of Jesus. See, Joshua's kind of like Jesus. We see those things happening, but that's what the, Paul tells us in the, old, in the New Testament, that the things you see in the Old Testament are shadows. They mean you see things that are coming. And what do we see in Joshua? We see a shadow of Jesus, the one who can speak and command nature and bring dead to life. Jesus is the one who speaks and holds all things together. 
He holds every little electron spinning around that nucleus. And he's making every single one doing it. We talked about that in Sunday school, even that hammer that was hitting his hand. So, Jesus is the one who's Lord and Savior. Jesus is the one who's mediator and warrior in this passage. So when we see a passage like this that shows us what Jesus is like and the roles he would play, the next question we need to ask then, okay, I see how this shows me what Jesus is going to be like. Then you have to ask, how does that apply then to my life, Paul? Why does that matter to me? Well, when we see in that passage that God judges his enemies with fury, God and his holiness and justice is going to do that again. God is going to judge all of his enemies. So it says that, Psalm 68, 21, but God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in guilty ways. The big question you and I have to ask ourselves about how does this apply to me is who are his enemies and am I one of them? That's the application right away. Wait a second. God strikes down enemies with hailstones and holds the earth in place so that he can be destroy people. His enemies. Well, who are his enemies and am I one of them? Because I need to know this, Right? Well, I think Romans 8, 5 through 8 helps us see the kind of mind of a person who is hostile to God, an enemy of God. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That means it's an enemy of God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, it says. Well, you may say, well, my flesh, I'm not hostile to God. But you can see in this sentence, it actually tells us what it means to be hostile to God. You're hostile to God if you don't obey him. The person that has a mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. Why is it hostile to God? For it does not submit to God's law. So then the question is, who has broken God's law? Earlier in the book of Romans... Paul tells us all of us have. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. That's what it means to break God's law. Is what, that's what sin means. If we say sin, it means a transgression of the law. It means you broke God's law. That means every single one of us born. You're born an enemy of God. This passage in Joshua is about you and me. Because we're his enemies. When you're born, you are naturally, you may think it's a cute baby. <laughs> and they are. But the baby's going to grow up with a heart that says, mm, mm, mm. And God's going to exercise his wrath against his enemies. 
We can't escape that. And you say, well, Hitler did. He escaped the wrath of God. Mm. Well, he's in a grave right now, but only for a short time. He will be resurrected. Every human being will be resurrected. Whether you're in Christ or not, every human being will be resurrected. And we know that God in the future will fully and finally pour out his wrath. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the key actor there. And in the seventh bowl of wrath, Jesus commands his angels to do what he did in Joshua 10, to pour out hailstones from heaven against mankind. Whoa, whoa. So who are the recipients of God's wrath? The fury of God's wrath? It'd be all of his enemies. And that's the big question that you have to ask yourself is, well, how do I escape that? Because I don't want to be under that. That's where your heart should be. Like, I recognize I've, I've sinned. Even if I said once, I'm a sinner. And I deserve that wrath of God. So the answer we found last time I preached of this was just like the Gibeonites. Remember? The Gibeonites recognized that Yahweh was against them because of their treachery, their rebellion against him. And they came to Israel knowing that they, Israel, represented God. And they said, we are in your hands. Do with us as you will, but we plead mercy. That, my friend, is what you and I need to do. If you have not done that, that is what you have to do. You have to see that God has not returned. Jesus has not returned yet because he's patiently waiting for you to turn to him. If you've not done that, he's waiting but we don't know how long he will continue to wait. We also saw, though, though, in this passage, that not only does the Lord judge his enemies, he rescues people, right? I don't want, you have to feel the weight of that fury of God's wrath before this rescue makes sense and feels good to you. If you don't sense the weight of that fury against you, then there's no point in me telling you about the rescue because you don't know what you're being rescued from. But now that we know that God is going to pour out his wrath, we know the story of rescue is awesome. This is why Jesus became a God-man, lived a perfect life in your place, died the death you and I deserve, took all of God's fury and wrath on him for yourself, and then was buried and then conquered the grave because he could because he's God. And now sits at the right hand of God praying for you, pleading on your behalf. So you have to ask, okay, how in the world do I get this transition from enemy to saved, mercifully saved? Romans 5 says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore, we've now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
So how can that reconciliation be yours? Cry out to God. Confess to him that you're his enemy and that you deserve his wrath. And by believing that Jesus, the, the greater Joshua, died for your sin so that you can be reconciled to God, you can no longer have to be his enemy. And there's no one that can do that for you, though. I cannot bring you to Jesus. I can show you Jesus. I can point you to him. I can say, this is what you need. But only you can come before him and bow before him and say, Jesus, I need you. In this passage, we saw that the Lord fights for his people, right? By rescuing Gibeon and fulfilling his promises to Israel and by judging his enemies with cosmic fury as a result of listening to the voice of a man. But know that because Jesus is the greater Joshua, not only could he command the sun to stand still, the waves to be silent, but he could also lay down his life and receive the judgment of God for you. That you too could be rescued today. That's the goodness of God that we sang about. That's the goodness of God that is free. So come and taste and see that this warrior king can also be your mediating savior. And if you have tasted and seen, I think most of us in this room have, we know the goodness of God. If you're no longer his enemy, rejoice with us. Like when you hear messages when the gospel's just laid out like I've done, don't tune out. If you've already accepted Christ and come to him, you need to rejoice. And like, that was me. That was me. Every day I need to remember that was me because I was his enemy. I was in his enemy. If you've tasted and seen, rejoice with me that you are no longer his enemy, but have been rescued by grace. And then think about this one last little bit. If all of creation, sun and moon waves, Adams obeys his command. Are you going to obey his command? Let's pray. God, we... I, I'm overwhelmed when I think about the nature of who you are and how you command nature. How you hold stars in place or cast them to the ground, to the earth, or throw asteroids around. God, you uphold it all. You are the maker and we are the made. You are the creator, we are the created. And so we have to come before you in a humility, recognizing that we cannot unmake ourselves. We cannot uncreate ourselves. You create and sustain and you are therefore naturally our rightful king to whom we must obey and listen to your commands as you speak just the same way that Jesus spoke. When you speak, God, will you give us hearts to praise you? Will you give us hearts to be able to praise you just like the sun and the moon praise you and the mountains and the animals praise you with their very existence? you give us that grace? God, if there's someone here today that does not 
know for sure without a shadow of a doubt that they are no longer enemies but are children adopted would you change them today give them hearts to believe that they would cry out to you and say God I don't want to be your enemy anymore in Jesus name